Welcome to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. This week, you're going to hear from lead pastor Nick Gibson and his assistant Jill Reese as they go through week two of the Escaping Babel Sunday class. In this class, they're going to talk about what it means to go through the process of human development and how having a proper understanding of the different stages that a person is supposed to go through can really save us from a lot of time of future misery and misunderstanding and confusion. So it should be a really good episode. In this particular class, they're going to talk about a couple different things. First, there's going to be some times where there will be Q&A. The, the questions as people were giving them in the class weren't actually picked up by the microphone, so those have been cut out. So if you get to a part where they say they're going to have Q&A and then the silence seems way too short for somebody to actually ask a question, that is just because they've been clipped out. So usually they will be reframed by either Nick or Jill before they start to answer the question. The second thing is in this class, they'll refer to a couple times to a handout that was given to people in the class. If you'd like to have a PDF copy of that handout to follow along as you're listening, you can find that online at highpointchurch.org slash escaping babble handout. So if you go online there, you'll find the PDF, which you can download and then follow along. But without further ado, welcome to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. So uh, Jill is going to start us here in just a second. Um, if you were here last week, we got to the end and there were only two questions, which is kind of typical of me. Um, and so what we're going to do this time is we're going to try to break it into five segments and allow for Q&A after each segment so that you don't forget your questions or I don't talk way too much so that there aren't any questions, hopefully. And Jill's going to start us off and then we'll get going. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Welcome. We're glad you came back or are here for the first time. Uh, if you were here last time, Nick said during the talk that his intent was to like blow up a lot of these preconceptions that we might have um, regarding sexuality or gender or um, life stages. And so if you felt blown up, then good, I guess. <laughs> and I'm sorry that I said the word like 647 <laughs> times. <laughs> Someone was counting. I'm just kidding. Um, so this is also the Engage and Equip podcast we're recording right now. So well, if you're listening later, you are not here in the room, but hello, we're glad you're listening. And uh, you guys on your tables in the class have a handout and there's extras on the table to the side of the room. Um, this will get to more towards the end of the class. We're going to have different second segments. Half. Yes, mm -hmm. second half. So hang tight for that. All right. So we are going to start out with talking about what each life stage is for and kind of the flow of the life stages, which, which we referenced last time a couple of times, but um, we got some feedback saying you wanted to see what we were talking about. So that's what this slide is for. And so Nick, can you lead us through what this means? Yeah, so um, there are lots of different life stages and sub-life stages and all kinds of stuff, and not everybody moves through them at the same ages. So this is a rough sketch, okay? But generally speaking, human life together in community, most people are going to flow through essentially three major seasons of life. So the first one I just called the emerging stage. And, th and I marked that through about age 35-ish. Now that may sound, I don't mean you should live at your parents' house until you're 35. That's not what that means. What that means is, is that um, you are doing more developing than other things during those ages. So even if you, if you get out of school at 23 and you're like done with school and you're in your job and all of that, you're still 
in your job, you should still be focusing on developing competencies, right? These are the years where you try to move up as fast as you can. You learn as much as you possibly can. You take less pay so that you can take a job where you will learn more. This is the age where people take unpaid internships and things like that. Like it's when you go for your dream, you step out extra, you work longer weeks. And it's not because you want to be a workaholic your whole life. It's because there are life stages coming where you will be in charge and you will have less leisure to work because you will have other responsibilities. And so you should be focused on developing. So whether you're 13 years old or 15 years old or 18 years old or 21 years old or 26 years old, you should be growing. That is the main focus of this season of your life. You should be learning from people older than you, more experienced than you. Even if you're coming up with new ideas, you should be doing them in a context of learning as much as you possibly can. And some of that is learning from mentors. Some of that is learning from environments. Some of that is learning from failures. Because this is also a time in your life where you should be the freest to take the most risks. And by that, I do not mean like sexual promiscuity risks. I mean, just start trying to start a business or trying to get into a school you don't think you can get into, um, deciding to work in Japan for a year, like just doing things that when you have two children are not going to be easy, but you really could do them now and seeking a certain amount of discomfort in Spartan lifestyle so that you can grow as much as possible should be an emphasis in this period of your life relative to how you're progressing. The center one, which is generally in my view, 35 ish to 65 ish is kind of the, the leading generation, which is the generation where people are generally in charge of stuff. And uh, the main thing you're doing in this generation is leading, is doing the stuff and refining what you've learned and finding new applications and trying to help those behind you age-wise grow so they can replace you and be better than you and to refine your wisdom so that when you leave that life stage, you are still incredibly useful to the people around you. Now, human beings deserve to live and be respected whether or not you can tell how they're useful. But the accumulation and ordering of wisdom is important for the post 65 age group because the average young person, if they want to know more about like business or they just want some like functional advice, information they don't know, they're going to usually look to people two or three life stages ahead of them, like 12 to 22 years ahead of them. If, if the whole world just seems radically too complicated and they want somebody to be able to, to simmer it down to like five basic principles to help them deal with their catastrophic anxiety, they, you want somebody over 65 usually, right? It's, kind of, it's like the Rudy moment where the priest says, you know what, let me just tell you what I've learned in my life. There's a God, and I ain't him. Like it's, it's that kind of like, you know, it, it's so P, uh, when you cross over into 65, you're not going to want to work 60-hour weeks. You're going to want to have some leisure. You're going to want to spend more time with people. You'll probably naturally have become, over the course of your life, more focused on people. And at that point in your life, you should be peaking in wisdom, right? And so um, your great vocation is going to be two things. One is advising younger generations and two, affirming younger generations, which is the opposite of old curmudgeonliness. The natural thing that happens as you get older is you just don't like the younger people, okay? That happened to me when I was like 32, <laughs> right? Um, that's very natural it's that's normal human experience because young people aren't very appreciative usually 
They have no idea how much because they weren't they weren't even hardly conscious as human beings when they were receiving most of the formative things in their lives. And so they're not anywhere near as thankful. They just have no idea what came before them. They can see everything that's wrong with everything that came before them. They have no idea what it took to get all the good things that are in their lives. And so they're focused on what they're going to change when they're in charge. Well, I'm going to change this. I'm going to make this better. And they, they just don't get it, right? And so you've got to be able to see past all that. You've got to re- almost remember what it was like to be young, but also hold their feet to the fire a little bit, but kind of do it in a way where you're entirely not insecure because you've lived life. You don't need to be insecure about it. You don't care if they don't like you anymore, and you don't care if they don't like your accomplishments. Of course they don't like your accomplishments. They're young. Part of the meaning, meaning that they're taking out of their life naively right now is that in comparison to you that they're going to be better than you. That's how they find meaning in their life right now. And so you've got to be okay with that. That's just part of development. Like somewhere around 46, they'll realize that's stupid. But it could take a couple of decades still. And so instead of separating yourself from them because of their unthankful stupidity, you enter in and you affirm them for all the good in their lives, all the places where they have good insights, all the things that they're moving towards. And then as you affirm them, they'll become more open to you teaching them. And then you can give them more advice And then that could be really helpful to them. Does that make sense? And so I think if you think of yourself as moving through those life stages, you can think about what what am I doing in this life stage and what am I preparing for in the next one? Does that make sense? Because if you don't think, look, when I'm 36, I'm going to be in a position and people are going to look to me for some very complicated things. If you're 21 and you realize that, you will try to learn every single day in every situation. And if you don't, you might just kind of drift through your 20s. And that's... That doesn't lead to a good 30s or 40s or 50s. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, and I think also one thing that stuck out to me when you were talking was being aware of where other people are in the life stages too. And so looking for a mentor who has built their life intentionally so that they're in the advising years and they have wisdom in the advising years because they have done the work beforehand to build up that. Yeah, so a quick example. If you're in this group and you have a essentially a functional mentor in this group, and that person is pushing you as hard as you can really go, which is what you want. That will be a very stressful relationship for you, which means if you add somebody in that group to help you emotionally deal with it, you'll do a lot better. But most people don't. Does that make sense? Okay. So, yeah, and, and I think what, so last time we talked a lot about relationships and like romance and like that sort of stuff. Can you briefly try to explain what how that fits into like each life stage right so okay to go back to the example i just said so like a young some young people struggle with their parents and then they'll talk to their grandparents about it and they'll their grandparents will have like a this too shall pass kind of like you need to understand where your parents are coming from and yeah they need to understand where you're coming from and like it's kind of like this you know this is going to work itself out you don't have to flip out about this it's this kind of the world is going to keep turning and like the 15 year old kind of goes yeah I mean I guess that's true that's kind of true I mean I'm still angry but like it just has this soothing effect right okay so there's four things I want to tell you about negotiating the life stages in terms of what you what you ought to do the first is um you have to decide if you're the kind of person who is going to embrace responsibility or delay responsibility. I suggest being the first kind who embraces responsibility. And that's a very fundamental decision about your personality. Either you recognize your life is going to progress, 
You want your life to progress. You want to have impact. You want to take the potential God has given you and you want to use it as he wants to use it. And you need to realize that you're not going to be able to live selfish, selfishly to do that. You want to grow. You want to have impact. You, your life is going to be spent for the good of others. That's what it means to take responsibility. And if you, if you believe that, then you're going to naturally do a lot of things, right? And if you, if you don't want to have to do that, like you don't really want to have to graduate from school and you don't really want to have to get a job and you certainly don't want a demanding job and you don't really want to get married because that limits a lot of possibilities. And if I have a kid, then I can't go backpacking through Europe, even though I've never gone backpacking through Europe and so on. Like if you kind of have this kind of attitude or like, you know, if I, if I move ahead in my job, I have to work 40%. I have to work 14% more than everybody else. And, you know, Netflix just came out with a new season of, you know, Luke Cage or something. Like, like you, re- you really have to cut off certain things and do other things. If you realize that you're going to want to have a lot of energy when you're 40, you have to eat different when you're 24 and exercise, right? Because the 46-year-old version of yourself doesn't want that extra 42 pounds, Right? And if they could talk, so that leads to the second point, which is think ahead. If you just stop and think and journal, so like, you know, Kristen could go home and like open her journal and write, you know, how old are you, 27? Okay, so she's 27. So she she writes, 35-year-old Kristen says, 42-year-old Kristen says, 54-year-old Kristen says, like, like about every decade and a couple of years, every 12 years or so. And then imagine you are that woman or that person. And what would he or she say to you? I wish you would have eaten better. (laughs) Work hard in your career right now. Quit that job earlier. Don't delay this. That dump the guy earlier so you could have found a different, like, I mean, there's all, but you'll know. Like, if you write these things down, you'll know. And just think through what will my what could my life stage be? How would I be feeling? What's going to be sapping my energy? How much responsibility will I have? What kind of relationship am I going to want to have? And then imagine that version of you and like write down what you think that person would say to you. Okay. I think along with that, what I found helpful is to like pray those things to like ask God, what do I need to change? Because um, I think that he has something for you in each life stage. And I mean, he, if you ask him, he will show you a lot of things you are not expecting. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, Erica. Yeah, that's actually my fourth point. Yeah, Eric is like, you know, that's really hard if you're 20 to figure out what you're going to feel like when you're 62. I, I, absolutely true. Let me get to that in just a second, okay? So the third thing is, once you've figured out how to, like, think ahead, don't steal from the other versions of you, right? Like, when you sit around and you watch 26 hours of TV this week because you really wanted to get through the whatever, like, and you, you're doing this regularly and you're not eating right and you're not growing in your faith. and you're, You are stealing from the 10 years from now version of you. You're stealing their life away. And that's a version of you. And you're not going to want that, right? And like, there are things I'm doing right now for the 80-year-old version of me that may not exist. I don't know if I'll be that old, but I'm doing things right now so that I can outlive my wife. Not so that I can literally outlive her, so that she won't have to take care of me. I'm, and I'm 41. I, there's some of these things I've been doing since I was 20, in my 20s, that I've been doing so that my health will be as good as it can possibly be when I'm 80, 
for my wife's sake and for my children's sake and for how I'm going to want to live when I'm 81 if I live that long. Does that make sense? And if you like, I mean, there are, there are decisions that I've made about what sports to give up. Like I stopped playing football about six years ago and I still can play football, but I could very easily blow out one of my knees. And if I do that, that has consequences for everybody in my life going forward. And so I stopped playing it, right? In a, couple, in a few years, I'm going to quit playing basketball. I love playing basketball, but I'm going to try to quit while I'm ahead. When I get physically to the place where I need to, I need to change to other exercises. I'm not going to play basketball in my 50s. And it's not because I don't love it. It's because I'm going to make certain decisions because of, of there are other future versions of me that I don't want to steal from. That's also true of my devotional life and how much TV I watch and how I eat right now. Does that make sense? And you need to not steal from future versions of you. It's theft and it's sin. Because in, you can think of fu- the future versions of yourself as your neighbor. Don't steal from your neighbor. And love that neighbor like you love yourself right now. Does that make sense? And tying back to last time when we were talking a lot about relationships, I think you can steal from other people too if you're in a a wrongful relationship with them. So you can steal from yourself because you're putting off things like um, commitment and children, but you're also stealing from someone else, which is very Yeah, I talk to people in their 20s all the time who are 12 months or 14 months into a relationship and they really haven't thought through carefully whether or not this is the person they want to marry. And if you're an adult, you should be able to sort that out in less than six months. That doesn't mean you need to get engaged in less than six months, but if in six months you don't have a very clear intention about what you're doing in this relationship, you're stealing from your future self and you're stealing from their future self and their future spouse and their future children. And you like start working out that web of all the people you're stealing from and it's hundreds of people. Does that make sense? And so... Um, that's very serious because you're not just stealing from yourself. You're stealing from everybody your future self is affected by, right? And then, okay, so then lastly, to Erica's point, you might be like, well, Nick, I don't really know how to predict how I'm going to feel when I'm 52. Yeah, that's why there's other people. And so that's why this matters and involving yourselves in the lives of others because if you look at a 34-year-old mom of two, like you'll be able to figure out what it would look like for you to be in that situation. Even if when you're her age, you won't be in exactly that life stage, you know, like you, you still, if you get married and if you have children or whatever, and if you move up in your job and you do these different things, which almost everybody does, you will progress through these different points at slightly different time periods. And they tend to have the same kind of realities. And then you can begin to grapple with those realities. For example, you're going to need a lot of patience. If you get married, and if you have children, and if you, if you move up in your job and you work with fairly incompetent people, because you will if you become a boss, everybody will seem incompetent to you because if you grew incompetence during your 20s and then you start working with 22-year-olds, they are incompetent compared to you if you grew for 10 years, right? Then you're going to need a lot of patience, right? And you better start working on that right now because you can't work on it by only throwing your six-month-old through the plate glass window every other day while you're growing. Do you understand? Okay, so, so decide, res- are you a responsibility or a delay person? If you're a delay person, repent and believe. Two, think ahead. Three, don't steal from the future yous or anybody who's related to them. And then four, utilize mentoring and people in other life stages 
in order to help you extrapolate and develop. And that's why being in a church that values multi-generational life is incredibly important. And it's why you should love the songs you don't like and the stuff that goes on in your church that isn't exactly what you like. Because the church needs to be for all the generations, all in one place together, so that these much more fundamentally human things can happen than whether or not you like all the worship songs a lot. Do you understand? Great. Okay, that's the end of segment one. Yes. So any questions on that? Engulf, yeah. Yeah, so for people who will be listening to this later, what Engulf said was cultivating an attitude of gratitude is fundamental to being open to realizing that things that you would normally be have a bad attitude about are actually great opportunities to be happy, to be godly, to really be open to other people. Gratitude opens all of that because gratitude will make you humble and humility will make you curious and cause you to be a learner. Yeah, that, great comment. Any questions? Okay, so we failed. Fail, failure number one. Okay. <laughs> um, Nick, as you were talking through this uh, flow of the life stages, um, you mentioned how it can be difficult. We can run into tension with different generations, and but we need to be aware of those differences and be thankful for them and take advantage of learning from them. But I think something also that gets in the way or that delays us or we either accept the responsibility is the differences between the genders and how that relates to our relationships and our sexuality and... Um, choosing to commit to someone so that we can have a family and and so how so that's hard <laughs> that's difficult yeah so right, so segment two yes genders dating gender sexuality and the, and the differences i think specifically between men and women yeah okay so let me yeah. let me just sketch the argument quickly right so one modernity functions as though men and women are basically interchangeable there is some recognition that men and women are exactly the same but that they, are, that they are functionally within culture and work and everything else essentially interchangeable. I, I think that that's wrong. It's, it's, there's a lot that's right about it, but that at the end of the day, the way it's utilized and the way it comes into our conceptions of how to live, it's wrong. Okay. So two, this, if this leads to a profound misunderstanding of men and women, which three, it, we proceed... Um, if we proceed that way, it's really pretty horrifically destructive for men and women and for children. And so, let me give yeah, you a, so a couple kids. examples. So one, for kids, um, it leads parents to tend to try to raise gender-neutral children. Like when they have boys, they don't say, this is a boy, I should parent this way. When they have a girl, this is a girl, I should parent this way. They feel like whatever is inborn in masculine and feminine will come out. And I should emphasize that. I should just parent them all equally. And that's a really bad idea. Because you need to affirm the masculinity of boys and you need to affirm the femininity of girls and they have these raw components in them and if you pretend they don't exist and you're like, well, they'll just come out. No, they actually need to be cultivated. Masculinity needs to be cultivated and femininity needs to be cultivated. That doesn't mean girls don't play in puddles and like boys don't like talk to each other. Yeah, what might it look like? Like what's an example? Well, I think for example... Um, Boys and girls, like generally in play when they're very young, are generally interested in different things, right? And I don't think you should try to get them to all play the same way, right? And so a, a playroom for a boy is may have more padding in it, right? Or 
covering strong coverings for windows or like you because you're just going to get a more aggressive play and if you have to tell the kid oh oh sweetie you can't right a lot of parents used to cope with this by just sending them outside right you just need to go outside um and i'm i'm not saying that like there is this curriculum for girls and the curriculum for boys what i'm saying is is that i have children that are both boys boy children and girl children right and i when my boy child does something that is traditionally masculine i don't try to pull him back to the mean right I, I drive him forward into it. And when one of my girls does something that's traditionally feminine, I don't try to pull her back to the mean. I let her explore it. And then I try to help guide her in what, what it looks like to be virtuously and godly in that feminine thing. And same thing with my son, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. And so... So, and that, what you're mainly saying, so God created it, things in men and in women, which comes out, you know, when they're children. Mm-hmm. And the purpose of that is then so that we can use our lives in specific ways to be productive in specific ways. Right. As a, as Let me give you just gender. A, yeah. Like a really simple example of this is as a dad with three daughters, I have to, I have to in t- very intentionally slow down and listen to my girls talk to me. And if I don't, if I don't force myself to do that, it wounds them mm-hmm. because they, they feel close to me in this conversing and in this, right. And my son, that's not true. If I don't, wrestle with him and take him to do man stuff. He feels like we're not close. Mm -hmm. And it is very predictable by gender in my household. My girls need to talk to me and my son needs to do boy stuff with me. Mm -hmm. Now that's probably because there's my house is dominated by females and he needs to get away, you know? So there's (laughs) subtext in that too. And so I'm not saying you should try to force boys into this very narrow thing and what girls, what I'm saying is, is that you will have to accept anyway as a parent that boys and girls are different if you just, observe them mm-hmm. and so understanding masculinity and femininity and incorporating that into your parenting enhances your children mm-hmm. it doesn't make them sexist or something mm-hmm. yeah so how does that how does this affect men and masculinity what's yeah the if, of that? if if you don't have if you focus on masculinity as a suppressive construct right that then men don't have a positive major focus conception on what masculinity looks like now, men are always in the midst of making a fundamental decision because of their inherent strength, whether to be providers and protectors or pirates and pillagers. Like, like every man is making that choice. Every, like every year the school comes to me and the sixth grade boys, like their puberty awakens, right? And oh, without, no. like without question, this happens every single year and you can almost date it to the, uh, the month. They'll start slapping girls behinds on the playground or they'll like, try to touch their chests without making it look like they're trying to, right? And, the, and this just all of a sudden happens. And they always make me give this talk to them. Like, I'm going to have to, right? And, and I don't say, look, you shouldn't touch girls when they don't want to be touched, which is all true. But I don't do the me too thing. What I say is, I say, listen, you have to make a choice whether the women in your life are the, that you are in their life so that you can protect and provide for them or you can use them like a pirate or a pillager. That's the choice you're going to make as a man. You'll never be neutral. Men can't be neutral about this. It's not within our capacity. Either we say, I am here to protect or I'm here to indulge. Those are the only two things men do. And so if, I know that sounds simplistic, but it's relatively true. Because if a man takes, psychologically takes the role of saying, I am here to provide and protect. 
they become like a knight. They, bec- they become a guardian. And as a guardian, they know who they are. They know what they're doing. And now, if a man like that loses his job, it's very psychologically traumatic, right? But it's, it, that's not because they shouldn't have put a lot of stock in their job. Like, maybe they became idolatrous about it. But that's a real thing that should be the case, right? And so... If you don't have that, then men will naturally, if, you don't have to tell them, well, I bet you're probably going to become a pirate and a pillager. They just will be, and they just, they, they, they don't think anything else is really relevant, right? Because if you're not harnessed for something, then what do men want to do? Well, they want to consume rather than produce. They want to be lazy rather than fight, right? And they want to indulge in female affection rather than provide for feminine, like, flourishing, right? And so, I, like, I've been around lots of t- 20-something guys who, like, it's all video games, like, which girl they slept with without any relationship of commitment, and, and they're, they live incredibly unproductive lives. And that's normal for men who don't have a idea of masculinity put in front of them. Does that make sense? Yeah, and it's normal because of the curse. From, right. They're created for something. Right, that's then, what the flesh will yeah, produce. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. If, if, the, if the image of God is renewed by Christ so they can be, they can live in the image of God, right? To take dominion over the earth and subdue it and to create this, this place of flourishing, then they will go the other way and they will, they will take from the earth and everything that's in it. Does that if make sense? If you're new to the Bible, you should check out Genesis 1 through 3 in yeah. the very beginning. The first three pages. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Erica, do you have a comment? Yeah, I th- so Erica said for those listening, um, you know, when you have a couple where everybody does the, the two cu- the two people in a couple seem to do exactly the same things, it can be kind of gender confusing, right? Even for a family that has pretty traditional ideas of gender, and let's let's say for the purpose of the gospel, gospel centered and biblical understandings of gender. Okay, so kind of the point that this gets to is because you might say, well, look, you know, we live a pretty we have a pretty egalitarian relationship. Like you might feel that way about whatever relationship you might have. Okay, so here's the thing. The more egalitarian you express your gender roles, the more important that you can articulate gender roles, right? The, the fewer observable and obvious differences there are, the more you've got to be able to articulate to your kids. Like, like mommy and I do very, very similar things. You've probably noticed that. But here are some of the ways in which we respond to each other in complementary ways that we're not, where we're not the same. And you'd better be able to explain that. Uh, otherwise, it will be it will be confusing for your kids. And the, the problem is, your kids can't help but want to order their gender. Like, like gender is a is like the second most fundamental thing about a human being after humanity. And so, saying that this can be left to kids to sort of make up as they go along in their earliest years is it's essentially child abuse. It is it is is so far outside of the realms of reality in terms of how adults should relate to children. That it's, if it wasn't fundamental to our culture, it would be beyond contemplation. In most places of the world, it is beyond contemplation. But in a lot of those places, treating women well and treating men well seems beyond contemplation. And so we shouldn't be too self-righteous about it. We just need to be clearer about what we think and how we can communicate it. Does that make sense? Yeah, so what does this look like for women? If... If like the gender differences and and why they were inherently made a certain way and the purpose of that and why that's a good thing. Yeah. Okay. So 
my, my view is that within this cultural context, if women don't have a clear conception of femininity, and I would say and masculinity, they'll become anxious and angry and be taken advantage of terribly in this present system. Um, throughout in almost the entire history of the world, sexuality, the formation of families, and masculinity and femininity have been governed by extraordinarily extensive sets of rules and cultural practices. And then somewhere around the Cultural Revolution in the 1960s, we just decided not to do that anymore. <laughs> right? And we also invented this thing called the pill. And um, a lot of people know that promiscuity skyrocketed with the, with the advent of the pill, but it actually started to skyrocket a little bit before that with the invention of, anybody know? What was the first thing invented technologically that radically increased teenage promiscuity in pregnancy? Not, not TV, but that's a good guess. The car. Yeah, the, the car with a large enough seat to have sex in. Yeah, yeah, that was huge. Because now you could get out of your parents' house, you could drive anywhere that wasn't lit, and you could make out or grope or neck, as they used to say, or have sex. And even before the pill was widely distributed, sex rates among teens skyrocketed because of the car. And then when you added to that the pill, privacy without consequences, well, then it was just like... And it just shows that all along, we were only ever obeying the rules because of our fear of the most immediate possible consequences. And that's really not how God wants us to live. He wants us to believe something is inherently good and true and beautiful. And regardless of the consequences, to live towards it. And then naturally to experience its blessings. Does that make sense? And so what I tend to see in younger women um, who don't get this straight is... Um, they tend to be taken advantage of by men because they can't tell the difference between a provider and a pillager. Right? Mm, yeah. And that's hard. It's hard. If you don't, if you don't understand that that's how men function and you need to determine which is going on or what trajectory this man is on, mm -hmm. uh, that's huge. If you don't realize that um, the, the advent of sex into a relationship, especially for a man, radically declines the intimacy of conversation in a dating relationship. Um, there's like there's all kinds of these like unspoken kind of functional things yeah. that just and and so Archie McKinney who was uh, a hematologist at the UW and, a, and an elder at this church for years um, used to say has said for probably 30 years that the sexual revolution as a product of feminism was the biggest trick that men ever played on women. Because essentially, men would get all that they wanted out of the male-female relationship, at least in the most visceral sense. And women would get nothing that they wanted out of, the, out of the relationship in the most visceral sense. In terms of longings, human longings and appetites, mm -hmm. women would get much less and men would get much more, much, easy, much easier. What that creates is it creates also a sexual culture in which women have a very strong... Um, effect on them of decreasing the cost of sex because most men have not controlled their pillager instinct. And so all things being relatively equal, they will gravitate towards the woman who gives sex the most and the earliest. And women know that. They observe it. They're not stupid. And so they realize that there's this huge downward pressure on giving up sex. That's why you could see this even in my lifetime. Like people just a little older than me, it was considered like you wouldn't have sex till you lived together. 
or you wouldn't have sex until you knew each other pretty well. And then it was kind of like after you've been dating for months and like, you know, now you, you talk to college students and it, it, it's not weird. Like the, the, like the mentality is now, whether or not everybody practices it is a different thing, but the mentality is, is that having sex on a, on a, like a first encounter with somebody is not anti-human. Like it's not this fundamentally weird thing to them. It seems perfect because sex is recreation and intimacy is relationship. And those two are not related, which is insane. But like, it's very easy to persuade yourself of things when your appetites want things. And it's hard to see. You don't really see the cost of that until you're 35. And then you've realized you've delayed all of that because it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel that bad in the moment. Like you might feel if you're in a dating relationship and because the man will show other, interest in you yeah, you and might will feel show exclusive and interest in you. and stuff right. but later you might i mean he might not marry you right there, might, there, yeah so yeah. a man who is a, who is a taker rather than a a pro, pro, provider right he will commit to you singly as a woman so long as he's getting what he wants and yet will may never marry you Right? And you think that because he's committed to you in- individually that he's on this progression and he's not. Right? He wants a he wants a coal mine that will keep producing a steady amount of coal. He wants to have sex well if he's under 28 like as basically as much as possible. And monogamous relationships are by far the best way to get regular frequent sex. Right? And so he'll he'll hang with that for I mean years. And it feels like security it feels like secure, relational security, but and it's, it's not, not going anywhere. And if he finds a better yeah. mind, yeah. he may just leave. Commitment is relational. Security. Yeah, and because because if somebody's a pillager, you are not accruing anything, right? If they're taking from you, but they're a pillager, they're not saying like, "Well, I've taken a value of fifty from this. I need to pay that back." Like um, only a man who is a provider is saying, "I take thirty, so I must give 70. Mm-hmm. Right? A provider thinks that way, right? Who's been ordered morally in a particular kind of way. A taker, which is what a man is without redemption and formation, right? Says, I've taken 30. They're a sucker. I'm smart. That's, right? They should know better. They're naive and they're just paying the price for their naivety. I, or, yeah. or they convince themselves because of the way we talk about sexuality that the woman really is getting what she wants. And the woman doesn't stand up and say, I'm not getting what I want here. I was going to say that it's, it's not as obvious as a man thinking she's a sucker. Like, I don't think... Most men no might very think little that, of this is but conscious. It's very unconscious and it's very much built into the structures of our culture to to think right for even women no, to listen, think like I'm I've getting sat what I across want. from people yeah. who've been dating for seven years and said said to them basically, what in God's name have you been thinking all this time was happening? Right? It's like and and they look at me like dumbfounded. Did you like think that like that thinking about this would have been relevant, right? It's just not relevant. I mean, so, I mean, I've sat with people. I mean, like nine, twelve years, you know. She, and she now, and so what happens? Here's what happens: is the woman goes through a lot of these kinds of relationships, and they just don't work out, right? We call it serial monogamy. And the more of those relationships you have, the less likely it is they work out. And then what happens is there's a certain point where a woman realizes she's running out of childbearing time, right? And so she's kind of like, I need to make something happen here, right? No, you make something happen back at like 22, way before you run out of time. 
right? Because, because you don't even think about it because you're like, okay, wait, I'm running out of time. Okay, well, now you have to seal the deal, get married, actually get pregnant, then carry the child, and now you've just had your first child. And if you're not thinking about if this is someone I want to be married to, you might be stuck with someone that you don't really want to be married to. Right, and sometimes women think, well, let's see how this develops. No, the best way to see how this develops is um, don't get sexually involved with them. Because men tend to live up to what women demand of them, right? And so if women bring this down, and they're like, well, I guess we'll have sex because everybody else will give it to you, and well, we'll see if you marry me, right? Like, men... Men will live down to whatever level is expected of them. I mean, I mean, think about this. You, like, you're watching a football game. A man will not get up and get chicken wings that will be brought to him. Men, for the most part, do not do anything that other people will do for them. For the most part. There's some that have very strong work ethics. But for the most part, they're like the king lion, right? Who like lays there and lets the women hunt and lets the blah, blah, blah. And then when like another lion comes and is going to kill all the cubs— they bestir themselves and get in this huge fight and risk their life and do everything necessary for the good of the pride, right? And then they go lay down and let the, the women bring gazelles to them. Like, and, and men kind of function that way. Like, when, my, when, my, when something needs to be done at my house, there's something deep in me that stirs up and says, I am the man here. It's time for me to act, right? But when everything's happening, I reserve myself. I accrue assets to myself. I build my war chest, of energy, of money, of thought, of wisdom, of plans, so that when a moment comes where I'm required, I am ready. I've got guns, lawyers, money. I've got, I'm like, (laughs) I've got the stuff necessary, right? So my wife and I, when she was five months pregnant with our last child, she wanted a new van. And she wanted to spend like 20K on a new van. And we had like seven you know, and I like in cash and I didn't want to finance this thing like, right. And so for her, she's kind of like, we've got this family. We need to have the proper like vehicle. This is the, this is the center spoke of my whole life. Why don't you love me? Right. And I'm thinking all these things, like if something were to happen at the church and I was to be fired or I had to, or I had to resign, where would we be financially? And my wife is five months pregnant and we might have to sell our house, but the market wasn't good then. So what would ha- we might lose money on our house and then how do we do that like i'm thinking about all those yeah. c- contingencies outside the tribe the woman is generally focused on the inner relationships and the flourishing within the tribe mm-hmm. because i'm fundamentally wired to think provisionally what will happen to us if we're attacked from the outside what unknowns must we face in the future mm-hmm. so i want to put the money in the bank account i want more guns and ammo i want to know good lawyers and a good mechanic and like for every contingency i want to be ready where she's just kind of like no we need to buy some flowers and make this prettier and paint this wall yellow so everybody feels better when they come in here you know and yep. and that's good mm-hmm. and so you've got to negotiate that between a well-formed woman and a well-formed man yeah does that make sense and yeah. if women don't demand men to develop they don't mm-hmm. they don't the only thing that will make a man develop if a woman doesn't make him is an older man or god that he respects <laughs> or god but god usually uses yes. one of those right. two things yes. yeah. statistically yeah. speaking so okay we're going to pause for questions yes hillary Okay, I don't give talks every year to girls on this issue. So, but I would say um, f- we're actually going to get to this in the advice section. Yeah. So, can I table that? Okay. Yeah. Because the, the whole yeah. rest is like advice we would give to men and advice we would give to women on this stuff. And the women's list is twice as long. 
but we, the men's men's list is just words, a, but the men's so. list is just as hard. Okay. Okay. Any other questions? Yes. Sure. Especially if it's concise. Right, because as the brain develops, you're not mentally cooperating with the, its development, and so you're not getting the most out of it. Yeah, what, what, um, what Ingolf is saying is, is he's saying the hormonal production of puberty, the desire for sexuality and, and bonding and all those kinds of things that's driven by our hormones, you know, that gets fired up when you're like 10 to 14. And the prefrontal cortex, which is associated with restraint, being able to say no, um, in women, at least, I think it's probably similar for men, but in women, it isn't fully developed until 25 or 26. Now think about that. That's basically a full decade of raging hormones and not a, a fully developed ability to say no. And so historically, we had all these cultural, the community or the other humans filled in where that biology delayed. But as what a teenager would do without that help how they would behave became adult behavior. Adults no longer provided that help to teenagers. And in order for your brain to develop properly, it doesn't just have to physically develop. You have to consciously cooperate with its development to maximize that. That's what Ingolf is saying. Mm -hmm. So that's, I, re, I repeated that Ingolf for the people who'll be listening later. Yeah. And I think that's why mentoring is so important and the yeah. church is so important. There's a good that's section like on that. For those of you who are parents, there's a good section on that in the book, Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters by Meg something. Yeah. All right. Should we dive into some advice? Probably. Okay. Great. We're going to do advice for young men first. And Jill's going to say less during this portion than in the next portion. Okay. I'm going to try to go through these relatively quickly, and then we, you can do question and answers. One, look for the right sort of woman, um, which includes someone who's realistic about relationships and not naturally given to relational unhappiness, complaining, gossip, and one-sided expectations and lack of self-criticism. Women are far more likely to be dissatisfied with relationships in ways which will lead them to complain or leave the relationship. So, humorously, the most unstable romantic relationship on planet Earth is two lesbians. Statistically. It's, and it's not because lesbians are like worse than anybody else. It's just you've got two women, and women are far more likely to be unhappy with relationships and respond negatively to being unhappy with a relationship. And so you need to, like, when you, if you're a guy, you need to, like, be careful about the kind of woman, because if you have a woman who really cares and responds positively to negative things in a relationship, you've got a woman who is relational in all the best possible ways, right? But if you've, if you've got a woman that finds fault, like, we live in a world of no-fault divorce, and it's unhelpful. And a lot of guys have dropped out of, a lot of modern men have dropped out of the dating market entirely because you've got the Me Too thing going in, and then you've got the no-fault divorce thing going out, and marriage just seems like a horrifically bad problem because mainly what men give into marriage is their productivity. And what women give into marriage is their sexuality and fertility. And if a woman can divorce a man and still benefit from his productivity financially under law, but not have to engage with him in terms of her fertility and sexuality, the woman can get the stuff that she needs and the man doesn't get the stuff that he's in for. It's a huge cheat, right? And it benefits women's natural desires in the most visceral appetite-based sense. And so men recognize that and they're dropping out of marriage in fairly high percentages. And so if you're a man that recognizes that inequality and that injustice, the only way to beat that is to pick the right kind of woman and they exist. 
And which means you have to not look for the woman with like the nicest like cheekbones or boobs. You need to look for the woman who understands femininity, wants to have a lifelong partner, deal and deals with relational issues, not with complaining unhappiness, but with direct action that is positive and constructive. Does that make sense? And those women exist. There's lots of them. They're everywhere. Um, two, get a job and work a job. Three, don't waste your money. Can I say something about this? Yeah. So my husband, Tim, um, he started working when he was like in eighth grade or something and saved his money. So I know that's like starting very early. But we bought a house when we were 23, I think. And I mean, as a woman, I'm just talking to you, man. That was very attractive to me. So I'm just, that's very wise. <laughs> Yeah. So, and I would say, work a job. Don't waste your money. And 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 related to that, don't waste your time. Um, the issue with with the, not just TV watching but video game use among young men, the issue with that is not so much it's like morally wrong to shoot digital Germans playing like whatever that game is. Like it's not so much that it's that that time is valuable. It's it's all the time you you should be investing in like growing in your faith, knowing the Bible, becoming more competent at your job, understanding how the world works better, learning how to do your own taxes, like learning how to put in tile floors, like all that, learning how to fix a washing machine or a dryer, like learning how to get all the crap out of a dishwasher so that it runs like new after 20 minutes of work instead of hiring some guy for $50 just to come to your house, which is probably more like 80 now. It's all that kind of stuff. Change your own oil, even though it is cheaper, to go in and get it changed so that you know how to do it, right? Change your own spark plugs. Get an old, like, three-horsepower outboard engine and get it running like a top. Like, do something. You are getting nothing for the video games. You get nothing from that. It actually is rewiring your brain for short-term, immediate dopamine gratification, which is deforming you emotionally. That's what's happening. Yeah, in relationship to a dating relationship, then you're always betting on trajectory because there are going to be five or six different people over the course of your life. I mean, people change and change and change and change and change and you can't possibly know. They don't know who they're going to be. They'll tell you all kinds of things about who they're going to be. They're not going to be that person, right? The reason, and so this, the way we're talking about this can sound a little secular, like a little like, this is all like psychology and stuff, right? Or sociology. Part, here's why. Their relationship with Christ and their passion in growing as his disciple is by far the number one most important thing. Okay? In order to grow as a disciple in relationship to your gender and these other things, you have to come to some of these realizations so that you can apply the gospel to them. If, if people are oblivious to these things and, and the culture makes it hard for them to have any of these basic insights, then, then Satan can use that as this block where their passion for Jesus can't infiltrate these things and integrate them in a gospel-centered way. So yeah, like I know this sounds like, okay, what you're basically saying is like, be good at sociology. Isn't Jesus the most important thing? Yes, absolutely. Jesus is absolutely the most important thing. And not just that they believe in Jesus, that they like have a Bible that they read, that they're committed to the local church, that they love Jesus that they're ordering certain, some decisions in their life increasingly around obeying what they think Jesus would want. That is by far the most important thing because that is the most valid predictor of their trajectory in some of these other things. Absolutely. 
But my wife would, would tell a group if she was talking about her development, like sexually as a wife, she was like, until I understood certain things about me myself as a woman and female sexuality and how I was wired, I was just stuck sanctificationally for like 15 years. And then something happened and like somebody told me something or I read something or I came to one of these realizations. And then like in a month, I had something sorted out that I couldn't have sorted out before. And so some of the reasons I'm saying this is this is just, this is just raw information by which if then you apply the gospel to it, you, it's, it's not hard to sort out where to go. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, four, if you're a single guy and you wish to be married, ask out at least one woman a month unless you're already dating someone. Just, it's just make it as a practice. You don't have to marry them. Just ask a woman out on a date for one date. Because if you ask out a woman a month and they all say no, then you know there's something wrong with you. Okay? Because women don't want to be single the rest of their lives. And there's tons of single women, for example, at this church. They're wonderful. There's tons of wonderful single women that if my son brought home any one of them, I would be thrilled, right? And if you ask seven of them out and they all say no, there's something wrong with you. And you might be like, well, they don't think I'm handsome enough. That is not it, okay? The main emphasis for women in, in deciding to bet on a man is, is not looks. And there's not very many handsome men. I don't, I don't know if you've looked around, but like men aren't particularly handsome creatures. There's always like three or four that are like, oh my gosh, you could fry an egg on his stomach or something. Like it's either very hot. And then there's like all the rest of us that are like, we've got a couple of good features. And women are the same way. W women, I mean, women are all beautiful and they're all basically the same. But fashion-wise, they've been taught to highlight their best features. And so when they select their clothing and their hairstyle and their accessories, they're all, they have like, they know they have two features that are above average and all the rest are basically average. And they're going to like do everything they can to make sure those two above average features are on display, right? And then they try to make all the rest look as well. That's why they use makeup and all that stuff, right? And so that's not the main thing. The main thing is, do you, does the person know who they are? Are they comfortable in themselves? And are they appropriately unmanipulated by other people? Because she wants to realize that he can lead their family and be faithful to the interests of her and him and their family and not be manipulated by outside forces and be used for other men's desires. Because she wants a man who's going to lead her tribe and take care of her children. She wants a guy who's productive and competent. And she wants a man who is essentially confident and disagreeable in all the right ways. I agree with all of this. This is very right? good. And so like you don't have to be the sexiest man in the pool. In fact, you can way outperform other men that are better looking than you if you focus on those things. And so if you get if you get like no said to you a lot, like find out who that girl's mentor is and like find out why she said no because she knows or she feels something and you can find out. And I've actually passed back to guys why they've been rejected because they wanted to know and I found out for them and I was like, well, this is it. And there's something to that, right? It's almost never something you can't change. So ask out a girl because she might say yes. And if she says no, you might learn something. And then if you deal with that, another one will say yes so long as you ask one out a month. And I, there are like four or five guys in this church that like, ev like about every other week I say, have you asked out a girl this month? And if they say no, I give them the what for for it. Okay. Um, six, 
Don't have sex with women you are not married to. Okay, listen, I realize that for the entire history of the world, the progression of sex has been controlled by women. That's always been true. Okay, or the men who protected them who were not having sex with them. Okay, like fathers. The sexual revolution has destroyed all of that. What that means is, for the first time in human history, men have the opportunity to be men and to lead in this area and to control our sexuality. Okay? It is very difficult to date a woman whom you adore, whose sexuality you want to possess, and not have sex with her. I understand that. I dated my wife for three and a half years. We'll get into whether or not you should get married in college if you know you want to marry the, the person at another time. I'm actually for that. Okay? I did that, And by she the way. did that. It was great. Because young people are not made to be celibately dating for multiple years. It's crazy. And they don't do well in school. My wife did much worse in school because we were dating and there was all this sexual tension. We always wanted to be with each other. If we would have got married, we could have had sex. Like, not a, lot, not a big time commitment. And then all the sexual tension is gone. We could have studied at the same table and both gotten four O's. We got so much uh, flack. Is that the right word? Yeah. yeah. For before we got married in college, because we were going to get married in college. And even our parents, like our parents, Christian people were like, this is so dumb. And we did it. And it was my best year in school. Like we had more time. It was fantastic. We were, you're used to having a roommate anyway. So there was like no... There was no problem at all. And you've like really vetted this roommate. You yeah. know? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so if you, and here's the thing. If you're a guy and you're not having sex with the person you're not married to, right, it will make you contemplate what the next step is very soon. And women, if you don't have sex with them, they will either move on to another girl who will, which is possible and even likely, right? Um, but if they don't, if they think you're worth it, they will contemplate much sooner what the next step is. And then when they ask you to live with them, you say no. But I do think, we talked about this a little bit in our like three girls and a guy discussion in my office, that I think it's important for women in dating relationships, especially when they take certain stands sexually, to explain their theology of sex. Because a woman's theology of sex should be something like, there's no way in HEL we're having sex before we're married. And there is no way that I will deprive you of that joy after we're married. Now, this doesn't mean I'm going to have sex every single time you want. But I realize that that union and the enjoyment of that is a big part of what you're hoping to get out of our relationship. And it's a big part of what I'm hoping to get out of that relationship. And the same self-discipline that I'm using to restrain myself now and that I'm hoping you'll use to restrain yourself now is the same discipline, self-discipline that I'm going to use to be generous with you sexually after we're married if that ever happens, with whoever my husband is going to be. And I think that that is helpful because men are concerned that whoever they're dating is going to be frigid. If, they, if, you don't, if the woman won't have sex with them, they'll be like, well, then she's not going to have sex with me when we're married. That's not how it works, actually. Because women who use sex in terms of power or ease before marriage are likely to do the thing related to power and ease after they're married, which after you're married, withholding sex is the woman's power. And not having sex with the husband who wants to when you don't really want to all the time is the easiest thing to do. So women who, who use power and ease in relationship to sex before married are the least likely woman for a man to be sexually happy with after you're married. Does that make sense? I mean, my wife, if my wife was doing a talk with just women, she would say something like this. I, I want to have sex about a third of the time my husband and I have sex. Like really want to. 
about a third of it. I get revved up while we're doing it and I like it. And about a third of the time, I just love my husband. And that's just the reality of the differences in our sexuality. And, and that changes, that some changes some over time. That's more true before 35 and probably less true after 85. But that's kind of fundamental to male and female sexuality. And it's a fundamental problem with monogamy, right? Monogamy is this thing in which you have one person who wants to have many people have just one. And so that, that creates an issue. Does that make sense? And so men want to know what's going to happen after we get married. And they know a lot of men who get married and have extremely unfulfilling sex lives. And, and usually that, that has nothing to do with acrobatics or pornographic toys. It, it has only to do with two things. One, will the woman have sex with you? And two, will she at least act like she's interested while having sex with you? Those are the only two main issues related to sexual fulfillment. That's it, right? Expressed desire in the woman towards the man during sex and doing, doing it. If those two things exist, I don't know a man who gets those two things from his wife and isn't thrilled with his sex life. It doesn't matter her weight. Like, it doesn't matter, like, almost anything else. It's those two things, and only those two things. And both of them are problems. There's some women who have sex with their husbands, but they display how uninterested they are. And that's like having sex with a prostitute. Like, even some prostitutes will fake it. It's extremely unfulfilling and humiliating for the man, and they don't like it. And there's the issue of frequency. So, and there's, there's whole talks we've done on, I've done on that, and we could do that another time, but that's important. Um, seven. Yeah, we should, I should get through this quicker. Seven, learn how to be masculine in good ways without being disgusting, boorish, callous, or condescending. And I've given a number of examples. Only seven, 16. <laughs> um, a couple, just to highlight, grow in your faith like you're going to pastor a family with grandchildren. Right? You need to grow in your faith now like you're going to be the pastor of a church of two to six people that will then grow over several decades to as many as 25. And you are the pastor of that church. And so you need to grow like you're going to be a pastor because you are. You are the priest of your household. Does that make sense? And so that should change how you interact with the faith. And then a couple others that we don't normally do that much. Uh, six, behave in gentle protectiveness towards women and children. People should see that in you, and women should see that in you, and they find it attractive, actually, um, as long as it's not domineering and, like, taking more control in a relationship than you should. But just basic stuff like observing when little boys are going to get themselves killed and, like, like saying to an older woman, like, when she drives her car, be like, can I park that for you? Or seeing, like, an 80-year-old get out of their car at the, at the handicap spot and you're walking in, you walk over and say, can I take your arm while you walk in in February? And she says, of course. And then you hold her arm and then you talk to her in gentleness with protectiveness because on your watch, that 82-year-old woman is not going to fall. Right? And you, like, you take responsibility for that because anybody who's around you, if you're a man, you are have some relationship of protection to them and provision, even if they're not your wife and your family. And women tend to like that. 
Um, seven, be appropriately disagreeable. There are a lot of men who just, they don't have formed enough personalities. They don't know what they want. This is the classic, you know, the nice guys finish last. Like all things being equal, if you're like a jerk or if you're like a nice guy, the girl will go for the jerk. You know that deal? That's absolutely true. Okay, it's absolutely true. And it's fundamentally biological. Women are never going to do something different than that unless they've been divorced twice. Like if they go for like the, you know, the, the tough guy twice and they like it turns out terrible and now they've got three kids to provide for they'll marry you the nice guy okay they'll do that however there's a reason they do that nice guys are also weak guys and they, they display weakness they might have a certain kind of strength but they look weak they act weak they seem weak you can watch them be manipulated by other people and that's extraordinarily unattractive to women because they need somebody who's going to rule their tribe, somebody who's going to not be manipulated by outside males and women and so on. And they need a strong man and they know that and they need somebody stronger than them. And so they're never going to touch that guy. So men have to learn how to be appropriately strong and, and usually disagreeable. That is not like you say something and I automatically disagree, but like I'm not going to go along with what you say just because you say it. If I don't want to do it, I'm not going to do it. If I don't agree, I'm not going to pretend I agree. I, and what I'm showing is not that I'm mean. What I'm showing is that I'm fundamentally independent. Okay? And then I'm going to be maximally virtuous. I'm going to be strong and loving. And if you're that, man, you can beat a guy with a Harley and tattoos. It's easy. Like, because women don't want to be abused. They don't want to date jerks. But if they can only have strength or niceness, they, can, they know they can provide the niceness in the family they're going to create, in the relationship. They're like, I am the one who can provide the color and the beauty. What we need is strength in this relationship. So I guess I'm going to go with this guy, right? If you're strong and loving, they'll go for you. And you, ha and, and you have to, it has to be obvious that you're strong. And if you can just stand up straight and stuff, that's like a great first step. But there's other things that go along with it too. Does that make sense? And, and like working on that, because like if, you're, if that's not natural for you, it takes a while to sort that out. And usually you need an older man to help you. Like get some masculine dude to mentor you and to work. All right. And then become highly competent and conscientious in your work. And then eight, and this may sound like an afterthought, but it's not. Listen, you need to lead other men to Christ. Because there are more women than men that follow Jesus because we're idiots. Okay. We, do, we don't want to submit to God. Women, are, submission is partly part of their nature. Responding to an initiator is fundamental to their nature, and men want to believe that we're independent. And so it's fundamentally natural that men are less religious in certain ways. Because there are some women that are religious that aren't Christians, right? Because it feels more natural and they're more open to it. In order for all of the godly women who would like to have husbands to have them, you cannot rely on them doing missionary dating. What that does is destroy their faith and get them sexually and emotionally entangled in ways they shouldn't be engaging in. What you should be doing is bringing other men to where those women are so that there is the sexual effect of like, oh, there's really great women here. Maybe I should consider Jesus. And then you need to lead them to Jesus. Instead of saying like, isn't this great? I'm a single guy and there's all these women. And if I don't like this one, I can dump her and date that one. No, that's not what you should be doing. That's not providing. And it's not protecting. You should see these other women and realize that as a man, part of your calling is to help provide what God wants to give them. And what they're lacking is reasonable husband candidates. And the best way to reach those men functionally is for men to do so, particularly young ones, and you should try to help them. And if that's the only reason to do evangelism, that's, 
not the first reason. The first is the glory of Christ and the salvation of men and the glory of belonging to Jesus and all of that. But you, but you shouldn't allow yourself to be the pirate and say, look at all these women I have to choose from. That's pirate. That's the pirate and plunderer in you. Don't be that person. Be more noble than that in Christ and lead other men to Christ so that the women who wish that they could have husbands, who believe in Jesus and who follow Jesus and love Jesus can be met where they are and their patience can be rewarded. Okay. End Any questions? Three. Questions on that for men? Okay. It's highly likely. Yeah, for those listening, um, Chris is saying, um, if you become that kind of stronger man, if you're, especially if you start to develop that after you're already married, it's decently likely that you're going to run into conflict because your wife isn't going to be immediately be like, oh, this is fantastic. She might, she might at first be like, I don't, li- I don't like this. I don't like this new guy, right? And yeah, it's very likely. Um, we, sometimes when I talk about parenting, I, I talk about John Roseman's concept in um, his book, Parent, I think it's Parenting by the Book, where he says, women have, been, women have always known that part of their job is to protect their children. It is only recently that modern ideologies have caused them to believe that their main job is to protect their children from their father. And so a lot of women naturally fall into this idea without even really knowing it, that how they want to care for the children is best. And therefore, when the father does something differently, usually it's harder discipline. It's usually what it looks like. They feel like they've got to jump in it because they're afraid their child's going to be traumatized, Right. And what, what the father is really doing is taking the child that you've nurtured into good health and stressing them in such a way as they'll grow to be competent and noble. And if you send them out into the world and they're not competent and noble, they will be destroyed or they'll, or they'll be wicked. And all the things you've done as a, as a woman and all the good of your femininity will be wasted. And so men and women have to learn how to work that out. Now, now moms have to be severe at times and men have to learn how to be nurturing at times. But generally, be, generally on balance, men are more wired to think about the world outside of the tribe that the child's going to be sent out into. And they realize that they're going to have to be prepared as competent, strong people. And so therefore, within the nest of the home, which is so nice, stress has to be introduced. Trial has to be introduced, right? And the, the mom is often like, what are you doing? What are you doing in my nest, right? These kids, are, they're developing fine, but they're not. not. They're growing fine, but they're not developing fine. And so, yeah, so um, John Rosemond's book, um, I think it's called Parenting by the Book, has a great section on that. Um, and what Lexi and I did is we actually read it out loud in the car with our children listening. We do that on trips. We'll, like get, we'll get audible parenting books and we'll play them in the whole car so that our kids know what we're going to do to them. And we nod along with it. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, yeah. That's but not fair. only that, my kids now tell me they're like, oh, I saw this thing with that family and the mom should really be doing this. And I see her not letting the dad do it. Like my kids are learning like by not just by seeing what Lex and I do, but the, the resulting instruction is really helping them. Like my kids like have taken a course in parenting already and it's, it's, it, and it affects the way their children. Like they respond to me different as a parent now because they're like, oh, my, my daughter has said, I know what you're supposed to do right now. <laughs> right? And then, I, and then I do it, and they receive it better because they know I'm doing the right thing, right? So I, I, that's absolutely true. And, and women, I think that's a struggle for women. And, but I think women are, I mean, Christian women are up to the battle. If they think through the gospel, and they try to respond in a complimentary way to their husbands, and they listen to their mentor, and their husband is engaging in masculinity well, and they allow for some mistakes, right? But they're engaging in masculinity well, That'll grow over, over five, ten years that can really develop that, I think. 
Yeah, Erica. I'm assuming you have a comment. Yeah. Okay, so let me summarize, let me summarize that this way. Erica said that you need to learn how to interact um, and, and, and to how to fight through some of these things. And I, I would just add to that. That's what you get with a mentor. And sometimes somebody who's been married 40 years is a better mentor on that than somebody who's been married 12 years. Right. Yeah. So if you're a younger couple and you're having like squabbles and stuff like that and you've talked to your mentor that's 12 years older than you and it's not helping, just like go up the ladder of authority, right? Until you get to 52. Actually, the Tyndalls have been married 60 years. So they would be the like, so go to Ingolf and um, Erica and then if they can't help you, then, you know, go to the Tyndalls. So, yeah. All right. Any other questions on the male advice to men? All right, we've got a little bit of time here for advice for women. We should probably do a whole other class on this, but yeah, they didn't invite me to Bloom because I'm not an <laughs> older woman. If we don't get through it all, though, please feel free to ask me or we'll probably do we'll probably do a pod another an additional podcast on all four of these segments. So then you'll get another shot at this. But um, okay, so let's go through some of these. I'm going to preface this section. So Nick is primarily going to lead, but I wrote some of these. I'm not going to tell you which ones. And um, also, we talked to two other women. Too. Yeah, so. Jean, who's in her 50s, yep. and then Nicole, the worship director, who's in her late 20s, too, and married. Yep. And uh, Nicole, both, but Nicole, she's a crew staff worker, so she oversaw a lot of female college age relationships and has a lot of insights into their befuddlements. <laughs> All right. So one, Jill, don't become emotionally attached to someone you would not want to be married to. Yeah. You want me to go into that a little bit? If you want to. Yeah, I do. Okay. So um, I think that this is really tricky, especially in a more like egalitarian culture um, where you can, so it's, I've heard a lot of women say, um, well, I'm just, my guy is just a best friend. Like he's just my best friend. And I don't think that you can be best friends with a guy without being in love with him. Um, and so be careful in friendship, especially um, if it's someone you don't want to be married to eventually, um, and because they don't display a lot of these qualities that Nick was talking about, um, or if it's someone you can't be married to because you are already married or they are married. Or you, you also said, or if they're, they don't appear to be into you. Yes. So that's, I put that this as is a, a separate, big problem. There, yes. are, there are numerous women who waste considerable yes. amounts of time waiting for a guy not interested in them to become interested in them. Yes. That is a big mistake. It won't work. It will not be good. It will, it maybe will work. It will not be good. Generally speaking, cause in, the reason why I think women think this is because women really do come around on men. Like they're not attracted to them that much at first. And then they kind of come around where they see some certain qualities, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. That very rarely happens with men. Mm -hmm. If a man isn't interested in you and then all of a sudden he is, be very careful. Mm -hmm. It's very likely that's going to last eight hours, first of all. And if that's if that's the context that your relationship is starting out in, you're always going to be dragging him along. You're going to either be like, oh, I'm going to be his best friend until he loves me. And you're just going to be always waiting for him to finally catch up. Or you're going to have sex with him and wait until he commits to you. And, and he isn't. And he, and he might not. And maybe if he does. It's, it's highly likely he is not going to. Yes. Yes. But you're always going to be the one in like initiating and having to pull the whole weight of your relationship. So just do not do that. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's terrible. <I> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. So two, three, two. Don't make yourself available to someone who oh, isn't into you. you we did that one. Yep. Three. Don't have sex with your boyfriend. Yeah. Good advice. Don't have <laughs> sex with your boyfriend. <laughs> and I, I think the biggest thing here is that even if if you're having sex with your boyfriend and you might and you want to, you both want to get married, um, there's something. Don't have sex with your boyfriend. Yes. Don't. Because, for a lot of reasons, but or I'll, stop having sex with your boyfriend. Yes. That's great. Too. And tell him that he should have led in that way. Yeah. And go talk to Pastor Nick. <laughs> if you think about it, after you're married, even if, so like I said, even if you get married, after you're married, there's going to be this level of mistrust there because he did not have self-control, or you didn't have self-control before you're married to not have sex with someone that you like. And so after marriage, if you have a, if, or in marriage, if you have a rough patch in your marriage, that's going to be And like you are going to have many of them. Yes. Yes. So. Okay. So I'm going to say something now that women often don't like when I say, I think it's a hundred percent true. And so I think you need to hear it. And men need to know this too. It's important for everybody. Um, your spouse, you get married, especially you get married relatively young. Your spouse is going to fall in love with between two and seven people who are not you over the course of your marriage. What I mean by that is the internal emotional storm of like affection desire like deep respect and like kind of wanting to go further in the bonding and that being something that's on your mind when you're around them and you kind of wish you could like turn that off but you really can't and and um and admiration has just become desire because men and women are programmed to bond with each other and you add the modern workplace where uh, your husband or your wife is with their coworkers more than they're with you and they tend to be in a peer relationship where arguing and bickering is not acceptable. And sometimes this will be with a slight superior um, or slight inferior, especially with men, somebody who's slightly their inferior in the work world. And so it's the job of the inferior to offer more admiration than correction. And then they come home and they get more correction than admiration from you. Like it's your husband or wife, but I'm specifically talking about your husbands right now, are going to feel exactly the same feeling they felt with you when you were dating and have intermittently with you now to between two and seven other people while you're married. So the question is, is your husband the kind of man that can handle that and can come home to you? And that gets at number one, I think, too, again. Right, and the best way yeah. to prove that is that when you are in love and dating and infatuated with each other and you want to get married and you could hardly be like just more driven to be with each other and like you know you have a future together and there's, you know, the only thing that's wrong with it is the law of God but you're not really hurting anybody else and like I'm doing quotes in the air for listeners. Like it just seems so right and he has the capacity to not do it. Right? When you have two children and he's on business trips and you feel ugly when he comes home and you're like lactating on yourself when you're trying to cook dinner and and like some new 23-year-old just came off the assembly line and is working with him, you know, 15 hours a week on projects they both care about and she's perfectly admirable, but she gets to do her makeup every morning and straighten her hair every morning and she wears three-inch heels. Like, you're going to want to know that that dude has self-control, not just eyes for you. Because men always have eyes for all of the attractive women around them. 
to some extent. The question is, what do they believe about love? And what do they have the capacity to do because of the growing nobility that Christ is making in them? Does that make sense? So that they, they, they control their own desires and they inflate their desires towards you and they push aside their desires towards the others. And if they don't think they can push their desires along for longer, they will quit their job and get a different one if necessary to get away from the woman who they're having trouble with. And they will know to do that and they will know to tell their kind of, like, that's a certain kind of man. And if you can control your, and so if you're like, well, I've already been having sex with my boyfriend, well, stop now. And however long between now and when you get married will demonstrate his self-control and he will also develop that self-control and so will you. Because women have lots of affairs now too. Right? I could almost predict in my last job, and this is not very complimentary towards men or women, whenever somebody's wife would change jobs, I would know there was a fairly high chance that they were going to leave the husband, especially within the medical community. Because of the change of dynamics, you've got all these new possible people to get entangled with. Um, the medical community has very poor boundaries between people. And there's all these different ways in which you can be alone with people. And, like, we're, you're, and you're trying to save people's lives together and like all these kinds of things. And well, of course, Panama City was the divorce capital of the country at the time as well. And so, yeah, so you need to know that. And so this, this, you'd be like, well, what's the big deal if we have sex? You're stealing from the older version of you. You are stealing from her. You are stealing from him. Don't steal from yourself. And there's lots of other reasons too, right? Because if you don't have sex, you will talk more and you will talk more intently and you will discover more about each other and you will know each other better and you will learn how to articulate things and, and like all of that feeds right into your marriage. Right? People who have sex early, they make worse decisions about who they're going to be with. They know less about each other when they get married. They, have, they don't have as deep a conversations with each other and so on. And that does get back to number one because I think for women, a primary reason that we um, become physically attracted to a man or, or end up in these sexual entanglements is because we've become emotionally attached to them and we feel adored by them in a cer- certain way. And, and I mean that's true of anyone. But So that's where boundaries certain boundaries are really important like Nick was talking about in like the workplace and so that you don't because no one wakes up and one morning is like I'm gonna have an affair today like it just it just absolutely slowly slowly it's like one little thing at a time so right right yeah. it's, it's just it like it sneaks up on you and so uh, learning learning Christianly about how to not sexualize relationships and how to deal with some of these things are really important because like you can say just one sentence a relatively weak moment that implicitly like lets the other person know that if they advanced towards you, you you might say something other than absolutely not. And you cannot afford that in any relationship that's cross-gender at all. And so just like little things like that, like just knowing you can never complain about your spouse to a person of the opposite sex at all, ever, who isn't like your mom, is incredibly important because the minute... The minute I complain about my wife to a woman, she knows she's more inside than my wife is because I'm complaining my, about her, about my wife to her. So she's my confidant, not my wife. What does that communicate? Does that make sense? Okay. All right. I think we're on four. All right. If anybody has to go or wants to go, you can. Yeah. Um, 
Pursue God more than a relationship with a man and learn to be content in whatever phase of life or hunger you're in. Or, yeah. Whatever phase you are in. Phase you're in. Yeah, the hunger was... So, so this oh, yeah. one is really talking about... Um, I've, I've heard women say that, like, when I'm married, I will finally like have this thing that I'm looking for it's like this we talked last time about the hunger of romance we're always looking for this like I want it to be satiated and so that's a natural thing but um you have to figure out how to be content without that hunger being satiated um when you're single because then you you can be content even when the hunger is satiated and you want more hunger later when you're married so because your romance won't fulfill you yes and because well, there's lots of reasons. There's so many Yeah, reasons. there's okay, so many we reasons. Keep. So we'll keep going. But Five, don't search for the right man or the one. Search for a suitable man. Yes. And um, this is kind of combined with number six and um, some others. But I think here I've seen an emphasis in women on looking for this amazing man who's like hot and like smart and like loves Jesus and is all these things. I've also heard women say... Funny and athletic and yeah. buy stuff at REI. And I've heard people say... I've heard like three women tell me that they could never marry a computer or a software developer because they work in front of a computer all day. Like we have all of these silly... Th- everyone works in front of a computer all day today. So like we just have all these silly yeah. expectations of like, I want them to be this kind of awesome person. And then as women, we have no expectations for who we are. <laughs> And we can be completely emotionally I'm fantastic. immature and um, and we want them to play into our insecurities and it's very subtle but also m- makes a huge impact. Yeah, so. but that's partly cultural because culturally what what we're kind of told is is that the, the emotionally healthy cre- human creatures are women mm-hmm. and men need to like get on board with that. Men, maybe they're good at building stuff, but when it, when it comes to emotional health, it's women who have that. And that is just, I mean, just... Bullcrap. I mean, that is the, one of the craziest things. Women are just, they're not more emotionally healthy. They're more in, intuitive in certain ways. They're we more expressive in certain yeah. ways. But they're not better at communicating, and they're not more emotionally healthy. I mean, in any sense of the imagination. But they're used to playing on their own turf. They're used to getting to be on home base all the time when it comes to emotion and what's acceptable and so on because masculinity is just defective femininity in America. And so you got to get rid of that in your marriage or it's it just it doesn't go and what i think that looks like is if you are a woman and you're anxious and you're swirling around every little detail of your relationship like what did this mean and this makes me feel this way and you're up and down like you you need a higher vision of i mean you need to focus on god and just like there's the you need to lift your sight up and that's where like your emotions can be too much so yeah. anyway yeah um, okay, so just to bullet point these, we're going to do a podcast on this. Yes. But um, when in doubt, be more feminine. I think that one's important, but all three of the women agreed with it. S- exactly what that means could bear more talking, I guess. Yes. Um, but I think sometimes women are afraid to be more feminine, and though they would secretly like to be, and um, or they think that what guys want are women who are tougher and less feminine, and that's usually not really true. Guys don't like women who are weak, but that's really not what femininity means. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you get a good conception of femininity straight, then oftentimes seeking in Christ to embrace that femininity more 
will often cause you to flower and often cause you to empower your husband to be more masculine in a good way. What generally tends to happen is if you don't do that, then your masculinity and femininity come into conflict in all the worst ways. So all the besetting sins of femininity come out and then all the besetting sins of masculinity come out. And if you don't intentionally work on being a, the good kind of feminine and the good kind of masculine, you're going to get a, man, a male-female dynamic. You're going to get a feminine-masculine dynamic. Either when you're trying to be egalitarian and things aren't going well, the bad masculine is going to come out and you're going to respond with a bad feminine. Or proactively, you seek to be masculine and feminine together so that you can get a positive feedback loop going in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? And the Bible has a lot of advice for how to be <laughs> appropriately masculine and feminine. So, right. Yeah. All right. So um, you should probably do 10. Yeah. We talked so, a lot about 11 last time. Um, so 10, um, I want to emphasize because uh, female friendships are very difficult. Um, there's There can be a lot of um, jealousy and insecurity and competition. And all of that does not have to exist. <laughs> um, and a lot of that is produced by feminine immodesty. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I think I know so many women who would love a close female friendship and just feel like it's impossible. But a lot of it is the tone that you set in a friendship. And so if you feel jealous in a friendship, confess that to your friend, say, I feel jealous of you in this way. And I need the Lord to help me change. (laughs) Um, Just being, finding a friend that you can be really open with and who you are encouraged by and you're strengthened in your faith by, and um, you can be yourself and confess to is very important. Um, And you will not find that in a man and you will not find um, your husband cannot be your best friend or all your friends that you need and your husband at the same time. So you need more people than that. Yeah. Agreed. Alexi was very ha- unhappy in the one of the first year of our marriage for about three reasons. But one of them was all my friends were single. And so she had to do the work to go out and find girlfriends. And she just didn't do it. She didn't have time and it was difficult. And it made her so unhappy. And she wanted all these things for me. And I was like, I, I don't have to tell you. I don't. I'm a dude. And like once she got some girlfriends, it got a lot better, you know, and it's not that I didn't want to talk to her. I just couldn't do it all, you know. All right. All right. 11. Seek humility in your career and hold it with an open hand. Um, This one is very difficult and a very sensitive topic right now um, in our culture. Um, I I would just want to say Debbie Biddle actually said this in the Bloom class last week or maybe the week before, but she was talking about how if you work. Or, or whatever. It's more about having your priorities straight. So it's about, well, the, the arc is not there right now, but on the screen. Um, but it's about thinking about building your life for your 50-year-old self um, and making sure that if you are married that your husband is before your work. And if you have children, your children are before your work. And you also need friends. So make sure you have friends. And so it's putting everything in its proper place um, so that you can... Um, really fulfill um, what you were created for as a woman, the, the calling that God has given you. And for a lot of Christian women, because they can have a very high sense of spiritual responsibility, what often loses out is the female friends. And especially if you're a younger mom, you cannot afford that. And husbands yeah. are next to go, I think. Yeah. I think we'll, husbands we'll are priorities, next, yes. prioritize children Usually. over husbands. So right. And, yeah, and that's actually, here's what, here's, okay, hopefully this will free you. Your children do just don't need you that much. Like one of the one of the things your children should hear from you constantly, especially after age four, is you don't need a mommy right now, and I'm not going to be one. Mommy has friends. Mommy, I'm talking to my friend. You need to go learn how to how to entertain yourself, or you're going to be a boring person. 
right? Ch children after about age two should be able to play by themselves for considerable periods of time. They should be able, if you parent your kids right up to age two, they should be able to play with other kids with, with a moderate amount of supervision after age four. They should be able to play with a very light amount of supervision. And that's why you've got to get your early parenting right. Don't make up your parenting model or accept a ridiculously stupid parenting model in the first four years. You'll pay for it the rest of your parenting, like into adulthood, but like all the rest of the time they're at home. If you get the first three to four years right, in terms of nurture, structure, limitations, and discipline, and respect of adults, and you get that all right in manners, you'll sail. And if you don't, you will pay every day. And you'll think it's your spouse's fault. <laughs> but if you get that right, your, your kids will be better, you will have better relationships, your marriage will be better. Like, all the... the the idolatry towards children that women struggle with in the culture that we have right now. That because, because you gave up your career that was your identity for those kids. So guess what became your identity? They did. And now your identity is wrapped up in them. But you also believe in Freudian psychology, which tells you that they're incredibly fragile and they can be easily traumatized and then they'll be ruined for life. And so you become this like hovering, protective, golden eagle that like emasculates your husband and like puts yourself in a cage so you can't go outside and has to be on the absolute nap routine and like, and it'll destroy your life and it'll hurt your children. It might wreck your marriage. One of the biggest costs, and I've said this a number of times and I will continue to say it. One of the greatest costs of silly parenting models is the happiness of those children's parents. If you are a decent human being and you love God and you have a stupid parenting model, common sense will cause you to edit it such that your kids will probably turn out decently okay but you will be miserable their, their entire upbringing. Like the parenting models where, like choice-based parenting where you're not supposed to say no to your kids. Like at some point they're going to realize there's boundaries. At some point you won't be able to do that because it's stupid and crazy. And you're like, you'll, you'll soften it and like you'll find a way to teach your kid how to live in the world and they'll figure it out because they're smart like you are, right? But you will drive yourself insane arguing with your kid every morning of what clothes they're going to put on. Like it's crazy. And don't do it. Be biblically parent-centered in your parenting. Marriage-centered in your parenting. Friend-centered in your parenting. Church-centered in your parenting. And you will, have a, you will enjoy your life. And being an unhappy parent and an unhappy spouse and the raising of your children is not the example you want to set. Yes. All right, anything else you wanted to touch on? I, in particular. I so think much. We hit, I think we yeah. hit... The major points. Yeah. So. And, and, and as you grow in this stuff in these early life stages, you can then understand and can articulate them as you pass them on in later ones. And if you're like, well, I kind of screwed those up. Well, learn from your failures, man. Learn from your pain and learn from your failures and you'll still be able to give great advice to people. And they will love and they'll cherish it and all of your pain can really help people in the future. And so, Jesus, Jesus makes you righteous by trusting in him. If you have, if you feel like I have messed everything up, Jesus is your righteousness, and you just trust in what he's done for you. So, yeah. Yeah, and he can redeem anything. So. Yeah, okay, yeah. so we're pretty close to the next service, so if you're going to see the musical, we better hop to it, and I have to, I need to go see it too. So um, I wish we could do some more Q&A right now, but um, hopefully we'll get to do something more extended to this. There'll be a little bit more um, podcast on this, so if you have questions that we didn't get to answer today, if you email them to Jill, we'll include those questions in the podcast when we do it. All right. It's good to see you guys.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us online on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps that are like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or otherwise share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways that we have to reach new listeners. So until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.